0: Well, I'm going to begin by talking about this young man here on the screen. In his 20s, this young, and you might say handsome, Alexander Graham Bell, found a way to speak into a gadget and be heard miles away. In another receiving gadget, if you will. This new gadget was coined the telephone, and many people were working on it. But it was Alexander Graham Bell who first patented the idea on March 10, 1876. He put it all together. He had something that worked. He patented the thing. And so he now had the rights. Now that's great, but you still have to sell it. You still have to market this gadget that you think everybody needs, but everybody thinks is maybe a little bit silly. Later that year in October, the first two-way, that is reciprocal conversation, over a line occurred between Cambridge and Boston, just two and a half miles apart. And so it was at that point that he approached Western Union. Why Western Union? Well, Western Union was an American worldwide financial service and communications company. And at that time, Western Union was the leading American company in the business transmitting telegrams. And so he approached them, and he started with the president, William Orton, and he tried to convince Mr. Orton that the company would really benefit from this invention, and how he envisioned every city, not every person, every city would be connected with a telephone, and it could all be theirs, said young Alexander, for just $100,000. I'll give you the patent rights. Western Union and the president, Mr. Orton, didn't take long to respond. In fact, the president balked at the idea, calling his device a mere toy and said it was idiotic. Well, very fine. He went on his way. But in just two short years, this same president, Mr. Orton of Western Union, was later quoted as saying, If we could get that patent for $25 million." Not 100,000, 25 million. And this would be in 1878. He would consider it a bargain. And then the Bell Company, or at that point, though, two years later, the Bell Company was no longer interested. The opportunity had passed. They wanted to keep the patent. And so the offer that was made and was refused never came around again. And yes, we could say that opportunity was squandered. This morning I want to talk a little bit about opportunities and perhaps missed opportunities or squandered opportunities. And so we're continuing our series on Paul and today's piece, When the Last Offer Comes. and We're going to continue on the journey with Paul. We're going to talk about some other things too. We're going to talk about criticism, like Alexander himself also faced and how he dealt with criticism, how the Lord opened doors. There's several pieces as we trace our finger along this story. Some of you may have gotten to the point where you say, I just can't take it any longer. I have to, to read on, and you've already read through to the end of the, the book of Acts yet again. But we're going to pick up where we left off last time in our series. You may recall last time, after a horrendous few days in Jerusalem, Paul was in the barracks. He was in distress. He was discouraged. And he wept and he prayed. And we talked about why Paul wept and he prayed. It wasn't because he wasn't prepared to die. He was very much prepared to die. But he wept for much of the same reason that Jesus himself wept for the hardened hearts of his own people, the Jews. What would reach them? And when we ended in chapter 23, verse 11, The Lord himself comes and stands before Paul. Let's read it again. We're in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. It says, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Can you imagine being discouraged? You say, well, yeah, I can imagine that quite easily. No, I mean, can you imagine being discouraged? Can you imagine weeping? And then the Lord himself shows up beside you and says, Elisha, be of good courage. It's all going to be okay. You have testified faithfully here in Jerusalem. You will testify faithfully again in Rome. And so not only was this encouraging to Paul, but it, it gave him a real promise If you caught it, the idea is that he's not going to just wither away here in this cell in Jerusalem. No, God says, I'm not done with you yet, Paul. You still have a message to bear to Rome. Paul thought he was going to Rome. He wondered if he had messed it up. He wondered if he had not presented the gospel properly and and honored God the way he should and if if things had all been messed up. But no, God says, you've done faithfully and you're going to go to Rome. I'm not done with you yet. I imagine here, in this barrack, I imagine Paul practicing what he would later write to the Philippian church. Perhaps it's this very experience that may have inspired Paul to write these things later. It's words that you know well. Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 to 7, it says, "...the Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing." But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the result? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Friends, Paul's trials are far from over, but we don't see an anxious Paul. What we see in the coming verses are a Paul that's very much at peace with his situation who has learned to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving he just places it before god and in return god pours out his peace what kind of a peace A peace that passes all understanding, that doesn't make sense how can you go through this experience paul how can you go through that experience in your life with this loved one with this trial with this health issue how on earth can you have peace it doesn't make any sense. It's beyond comprehension. It's beyond understanding. And Paul writes about it here. It's a peace from God. And it will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Paul's at peace. How are you going to get to Rome, Paul? I don't know. But God said I would. So it's up to him, not me. How are you going to get out of this barrack, Paul? I don't know. How about all these people that want you dead, Paul? Huh. said he's not done with me. So... I guess he's got a plan. Well, what is the plan? Well, I don't know. God does. Aren't you anxious about it? Not really. Aren't you stressed out? No. How are you able to sleep? Like a baby. I've given it over to the Lord, and he's given me a peace. So we continue on with this drama, if you will. We're still in Acts chapter 23, picking it up now in verse 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Sounds pretty serious. No snacking, no meals. Some of you are wondering even now if you could make that oath. Your stomach is starting to growl. How long is this preacher going to preach? I'm hungry now. Good news is you're on live stream. Go get you something so you're not distracted and come back. But they're not going to eat. They're not going to drink until they have killed Paul. Verse 13, now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. And that's exactly what it is. Verse 14, they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready. Kill him before he comes near. That's our plan. That's the conspiracy. We have it all mapped out. This is what you will do. This is what we will do. Verse 16, continuing on. So when Paul's sister's son, could just say his nephew, but that wouldn't be as easy, I suppose. Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush and went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Now, this is a little aside, but if they thought that Paul was some terrible, horrific uh, individual, he would not have visitors. The nephew could not come in, but apparently the centurions know that this is an upstanding citizen. This is not somebody to be concerned with. So yes, you're over here on house arrest, but it's kind of like Andy and Barney's prison cell. There's probably a couch in there. There's probably a bed, a nice little lamp or something. I don't know. And they're having conversation. And the nephew comes in. Hey, can I talk to him? Sure, let him in. And Barney lets him in. And so he's in there having this conversation. Hey, he needs something to share. So he goes back out. And so the commander takes this young man by the hand, verse 19, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Verse 20, and he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them. Why? For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for the promise from you. Isn't that nice that these 40 church people, zealous for the Lord, zealous in ways similar to as Paul was zealous, waiting for their chance, their opportunity, their ambush. Well, there might be some resistance. Of course there will be. That's why there's 40 of us. We don't have a hit man. We have hit men. But we've decided, we've taken an oath, no food, no drink, till Paul's dead. And so then, Verse 22, it says, So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. What will then conspire and take place? Continuing on, verse 23, And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Now, if this isn't overkill, I don't know what is. I'm on the internet. I'm looking for pictures that will help us to try to imagine how many people are escorting Paul now from Jerusalem to Caesarea. This would be quite interesting. I find this picture. I said, well, that would not work. I did the math. I started counting across. It's 10 across and 14 the other way. That's only 140 people. It's not going to work. There were 200 soldiers. So I had to start editing. This is a a, a very sophisticated, for those of you that are in school, for, you know, what do they call it when they, they doctor images and all that kind of thing? Photoshop, thank you. This is a lesson in Photoshop. It's very technical. You take the picture and then you copy and then you paste and then you copy and you paste and you copy and you paste, you copy and you paste and you hide one of them behind the others and you draw it all out and so that arm going all the way across might, you know, throw you off. But just roll with me here. This is going to be 200 on top. This is 200 along the bottom and they're going to escort Paul. Are we done? Hardly. There were 70 horsemen. I found some Roman horsemen good for me count how many are there one two three four five six that's not going to work don't worry i have a minor in photoshop here we go boom there's your 70 horsemen is that a little bit of overkill so follow me closely i got a little carried away here we have paul can you see him there you go shake your hand paul you didn't see that did you there's paul and now we're going to bring in the horsemen. Boom. We're going to bring in the 200 soldiers. Boom. The 200 spearsmen. And then some more horsemen in the back. That's Paul being escorted. And you say, how is God going to get in there? And God says, don't worry. I have a thousand ways to answer your prayer which, with which you know how much. Nothing. And so I say, you know, I, Barney Fife, I don't know if it's Barney Fife anymore. It's this Roman centurion. He says, hey, you have an escort, buddy. I imagine people on the side, well, it'd be nighttime, I suppose, but somebody's out there kicking up rocks, maybe some shepherds out there in the fields, and all of a sudden, here comes this enormous entourage. Have you done the math yet? 472 bodyguards, 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 horsemen, 2 centurions, 472! There's bad news in all this. Somebody's not going to be eating or drinking for a very long time. Despite the odds stacked against him, Paul was never removed from God's protective hand, and neither are you. Perhaps someone here this morning is feeling alone, mistreated, misunderstood, abandoned. Remember this account and know that God is at work in your situation too. He's working behind the scenes. His plan will prevail. Like Paul, seek not to be anxious about anything but by prayer and petition make your requests known to God and allow the peace of Christ to guard your hearts and minds don't focus on what might happen instead focus on what God has promised I think of Psalm 46 the first three verses God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore we will not fear even though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. As a friend of mine says, maybe he's a friend of yours too, look up and relax. It's all coming down. Notice this verse does not say God takes away all trouble. No. But that he is our refuge and strength, a very present help when in trouble. Mountains may be carried in the sea. Waters are roaring, The earth is shaking, but God is still my refuge. God is my strength. Thus I will not fear. Beautiful promise of God. And so we continue our story. Picking it up now, says verse 24 here, and well, we back up. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea, at the third hour of the night, verse 24, and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner. says in verse 25, to Claudius Lysias, not to Claudius, it's from Claudius Lysias, excuse me, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. And notice what he writes, verse 27, this man, referring to Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. Underline that part. And when it was told to me the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you. And also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. farewell. Verse 31, then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, excuse me. The next day they left the horsemen to go back on with him and return to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Caesarea. We were able to go there to this city. This city housed the residence of the governor or procurator, and Caesarea was the headquarters of the Roman garrison in Palestine. And so Pilate lived here in Caesarea. He just happened to be in town during the, the trial of Jesus. But this was his home. In fact, there are inscriptions that you can read from that name him, Pontius Pilate, in stone there. I should have taken a picture of it, but we were in a bit of a hurry the day we were there. But now this Felix, who he's delivered to. Who is Felix? Well, Felix is none other than Pontius Pilate's successor. And where is he? Well he's at home at Caesarea. This is what they think it may have looked like. I realize those pictures were kind of small but this one here would be the harbor that was all manufactured. This here shows how they built their own harbor and then there was a lighthouse here on the inn and they would come in and they might come here and right here where it says see this was the temple of Augustus and this is another picture of that and so boats could dock it was very impressive everything was very la ti da if you will right here is the hippodrome where they'd have huge i mean this is long we walk this i'll show you a few more pictures of it where they would have these long chariot races and all kinds of gladiator type events then here you have uh what is this the the amphitheater is up here which means it's perfectly enclosed this is the theater i have pictures of that too uh, and you can see all of that print on here. So this is where the palace would have been. Here's the Hippodrome. Here's the theater. And over here would have been where the, the I don't know, the harbor would have been and the temple and so on. And then back here along this long beach, I think you can even see the, the aqueducts. We'll, we'll mention that here in a minute. Here's a picture of the theater that's built over 2,000 years ago. Uh, this is actually pieced together of several pictures and then you walk down from there over to the palace. And they have a few pillars there to help you envision what it may have been like. A beautiful setting, the sea breeze coming in. And, and uh, let's see, there's actually Pastor Louis. Oh, and this one here taking a photo on the bottom left. You can't really tell. And this is where they thought Paul was tried. Don't be distracted by the cute couple. We're thinking about Paul right here at this place. And this is reacting kind of slow. Here's some more pieces of the palace, even some flooring that's uh, there. I don't remember how far that dates. This is some more depiction of what they feel like it may have looked like. And there you see the theater back behind and you see the, the uh, <coughs> what did I call that for chariot races? I don't remember now. Hippodrome, thank you. So impressive. My imagination was going crazy with this because you could just imagine the horses wheeling around uh, as we walked that vast area here showing the other way back towards the harbor. I mean, it's huge. And then I'm imagining the horses coming out from behind here, and they have their own places back behind. And so it was really developed to put on a huge show. Uh, I mean, this is a very developed, and, and it was Herod that really brought this and put it on the map. Uh, Herod was a huge builder, among other things, but he, had, he was a visionary, and he saw what could be. And so he built this. And then this is the aqueduct that would carry water. Uh, some almost 10 miles from the northeast, from a a well and from springs that they enjoyed. So this maybe gives you the picture of how luxurious, how fancy, how intimidating Caesarea was. Chapter 24 now. Now after five days, Ananias, we have seen him before, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tortullius or Tertullus I should say, and they gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Who is this Tortullus? Well, Ananias is a high priest. He spent some money and he hired a good lawyer. And so, Tortullus, you're my attorney now, and I want you to seal the deal for me. Would you? I want you to use the right words. I want you to construct the argument in such a way that he will give us what we want, and what we want very plainly. We want Paul dead. Period. But notice the flowery language that he uses or uses and even some of the blatant lies. Verse 2 of chapter 24. And when he was called upon, Tortullus began his accusation, saying, speaking to Felix now, seeing that through you, O great Felix, we enjoy great peace and prosperity, is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always, and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Can you hear it? Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us, oh incredible, amazing ruler that you are. We don't want to trouble you for long. But there's this little thing that I'm sure you could decide for us very fairly and judiciously by just saying the word. Verse 5, for we, uh, for we have found this man, a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander... Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Is that how it went down? Commanding his accusers to come to you. Straightens his tie a little bit. Puts his coat back together. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented. That means they nodded. Uh uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Maintain these things were also so. This guy's a troublemaker. We don't want to trouble you with him. Just let us deal with it. How would you have felt if you were Paul at that moment? All the violence now is being placed on the Romans when really it was the, the outcry of the mob and the crowd of the church leaders trying to rip him limb from limb, beating and pum- pummeling Paul. This isn't the truth. This isn't justice. But he's outnumbered. Paul doesn't have a lawyer. Paul doesn't have elders. He doesn't have any wagging heads and people nodding and saying, yeah, 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 yeah. How would you have felt? I imagine if he did have a lawyer, he would have said, I object, your honor. Why? Because they're getting the first word. They're shaping the story. They're getting it all wrong. They're blatantly lying about what happened. But notice how cool and calm Paul is. Why? Because he's anxious for nothing. He has the peace of God which passes all understanding. But don't, make that th- make, don't assume falsely that that makes him weak, because he's not weak. Verse 10 Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Cheerfully? Yep. Paul is answering cheerfully here but Paul does something that we can learn from I'm actually going to list off seven things we can learn from seven principles when responding to criticism anybody like criticism? I mean there can be some good criticism they call it constructive criticism everybody thinks that's what they're doing 99% of the time that's not what they're doing they're tearing you down but seven principles when responding to criticism the first one refuse to get caught up in the emotion of the charges. I mean, we might expect Paul to be blazing mad, to be filled with indignation. We might even say righteous indignation. But Paul practices solid emotional intelligence. He stays calm under fire. He refuses to let his emotions take the lead. You see, when we lower ourselves to the ever-changing emotions, ours, those of our accusers, Oftentimes, our anger is unleashed. Straight thinking goes by the wayside. We have irrational responses, impulsive words. It doesn't go well for us. I imagine Paul practiced some deep thinking. Just because somebody says it doesn't mean that you're in it. It doesn't mean that it's true. And so Paul probably stands there and says, are these true and accurate thoughts? Are these true and accurate words? I don't believe they are. Let me answer cheerfully. He doesn't get caught up in the emotions of the charge. Continuing, verse uh, 10, he says, Cheerfully answer myself, verse 11, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple, disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Here's a second lesson we can learn from Paul. Number two, stay with the facts. Paul calmly states what happened. He challenges them, hey, check it out, check my record. It was only 12 days ago. I'm sure there were hundreds of witnesses. And I imagine Paul looked in the eyes of his accusers while he addressed them very calmly. Do a fact check. And I imagine he didn't blink as he said it either. He merely unwraps the flax. He's not filling it with flattery, but it's just a cool response. And in so doing, I see Paul building up credibility. Do you? He continues, verses 14 to 16, we read, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. But this part is true, Paul says. He shows the reasonableness of his beliefs, Paul, speaking with integrity, with the truth, he gives himself credibility by saying, now this part is true. I'm not here to refute this part. Key number three when responding to criticism, tell the truth with a clear conscience. They might say something that's absolutely true, and you say, this is true. I did do this, but perhaps there's a context that you don't understand. So allow them, you know, say what Paul says, This much is true. I confess this to you. This part is accurate. And then continuing on, verse 17. Now after many years I came to bring alms and offering to my nation in the midst of which Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. Verse 19. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Ooh, good point, Paul. Here, Paul puts his finger on the crucial nerve of the whole thing. Who can argue with his point? He's basically saying, where are my first-hand accusers? Where are the ones that were part of this thing, that, that brought this about in the first place? None of them are here. You all are trying to represent them, but it's second, third, fourth-hand information. Where are my accusers? They should be here. Hmm. They weren't expecting all of this. And they are perhaps becoming embarrassed by it all. Knowing good and well that it's the Jews from Asia that need to show up. Not this Tortullus and the high priest. No, they're both being undermined at this moment as the facts are presented. Key number four, identify the original source of the accusations. Interestingly, when it comes to criticism... The deepest wounds are typically inflicted by the second and third hand sources. Your job, go to the source. Don't get caught up in the emotion of the charges. Stay with the facts, tell the truth, and go to the original source. Have you talked to this person? They're the ones that had the original gripe. I spoke to them. We got it worked out. That's not how they feel, or whatever it might be. But don't get caught up in the peripherals and trying to respond to every arrow that's fired. Go to the source. Continuing our story, picking it up in verse 20. Or else let those who are here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Paul wanted them to name his wrong. State it plainly for all to hear. But you notice that the account we have here in Scripture says that they don't respond from Tortullus, the attorney, no response from Ananias, the high priest. I imagine at this moment, if you have proof, something objective, bring it forward, and there's just silence. It's quiet. It's another phrase I like, let silence do the heavy lifting. You presented the facts, you haven't been emotional, you've gone to the source of the issue, and now it's just quiet. They know That they have gone out on this limb and now they have nothing to stand on. And so what does Felix do? Verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. He just dismisses it all. We've heard enough. We're done here. Everybody go home. Take Paul away. Everything they thought they had built on Paul goes away. Acts the Apostles 4.22 says this. Felix knew no higher motive than self-interest. And he was controlled by love of praise and desire for promotion. Fear of offending the Jews held him back from doing full justice to a man whom he knew to be what? Innocent. He knew Paul was innocent. It was obvious he was innocent from the note, the guy who sent it, the commander back in Jerusalem. He knew Paul was innocent. Felix knows he's innocent. I think even these church people know that he's innocent. But he's more about self-interest, love of praise, desire for promotion, so he just puts Paul back puts him on hold and what does Paul do well number five we saw that he didn't surrender or quit that's another good thing to do under criticism he was a man of grit he was calm he was cheerful but he didn't give in to what he knew was right if you can put those two together if you can have the grit to stand your ground and do it in a cheerful and pleasant way It can be hard to refute. A weaker man would have given in to the criticism. He would have quit the church altogether. He would have said, forget all you people. I've never been treated before like this in my entire life. I'm out of here. And I've seen that happen. I'm going to take my toys and go home. No, you don't surrender and you don't quit. And in every major cycle of criticism, there's a time when you think quitting would be the easiest option. I don't care what they think anymore. Don't do it. You hang in there for the right in calmness without anxiety laying it all before the Lord with a clear conscience telling the truth and like Paul you don't give up. You don't walk away. You don't quit. I need to put two more up here. Don't become impatient and bitter. We'll find that he'll sit here for another two years before any kind of change happens. But does Paul become impatient or bitter? Nope. Nope. Paul, what's your plan now? Whatever the Lord wants me to do. Right now, I'm in quarantine in Caesarea. It's kind of a nice climate. The breeze is blowing. They put me in a pretty comfortable place. I have visitors that can come and go as they like. This is the time I can get some things done. Some scholars even think that maybe he wrote some of his later works and to churches and communicated and back and forth right here during this time. He could have been bitter. He could have become impatient. He could have said, is this it? no but he learned all that he'd been in quarantine before this is not a big deal if this is where God wants me to be this is where I'll be I'll do what he wants me to do at this time with the resources that I have around me and then lastly here he stood firm on the promises of God God said I'm going to go to Rome I don't know how it's going to happen but man that entourage did you see that That sure was something else. I never would have expected that. I wish I would have had my cell phone to take a selfie to send back to mom because she never would have believed. I don't know how I'm going to get to Rome, but God's going to work it out. I don't know when, but he's going to work it out. I'm at peace. And there's lessons for us there today as well. Because he knew a heavenly father that keeps his word and he rested in God's faithfulness because God's all powerful. For God has promised us deliverance hasn't he i mean we too he's promised eternal life he's promised we know from his word that he gets the last word and so we can trust and stand firm on the promises of god the real question is will you stand and will you accept the promises of god or will you push them away and that's the last piece i want to look at this morning i know we're already past time but i'm sorry you have the remote you can click it off if you want to you say that's good enough i'm full that's fine. We're in Exodus chapter 24, verse 24. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. I imagine there was some pillow talk. What did you do today? Oh, I tried this guy. What was his name? Uh, Paul. Paul? Like the Paul? I guess. What do you know about Paul? There's been a lot going on about Paul. Have you not read the the Inquirer and all these other papers every time I stand in line? She probably didn't stand in line at a grocery store. But it's all the buzz everywhere about Paul. He's here? Yeah, he's here. I talked to him today. How was he? Was he this flaming lunatic? No, he was very calm, well-natured. Seemed to tell the truth from the letter I got. It all matched out. Well, can we have a private hearing with him? Sure, if you want you want me to arrange it? Well, yeah. You want to hear what he has to say? You think he has something to say? Well, I think he might. Let's at least hear him out. He's here. We have nothing else to do. I'm getting tired of going to the beach anyway. The hippodrome is is locked down because of Corona. I don't know what it is. Let's have Paul come in. Okay. So he sets it up. He sends for Paul and he heard him concerning what? The faith in Christ. Is this an opportunity? It's a big opportunity. And so Paul, I'm sure, is very prayerfully considering, what should I say? What should I share? And it goes on. It says, now he reasoned about righteousness, about self-control and the judgment to come. Boy, he didn't hold back. He didn't give a soft message, did he? The faith in Christ, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And it says, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient convenient time I will call for you. And then it says meanwhile he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But Spirit prophecy tells us he didn't converse about faith things after this. He only conversed about money. He was desperate for some more income. I don't know why he needed more, but that's where his mind was. But in this encounter with God, with faith in Christ, with righteousness, with self-control, the judgment to come, it says Felix was afraid. Look at this quote. Acts the Apostles 4.22 and in 4.23, they were willing and even eager to listen to these new truths talking about Felix and his wife. Paul regarded this as a God-given opportunity and faithfully he improved it. He knew that he stood in the presence of one who had the power to put him to death or to set him free. Yet he didn't address Felix and Drusilla with praise or flattery. He knew that his words would be to them a savor of life or of death. And forgetting all selfish considerations, he sought to arouse them to a sense of their peril. That's a true friend, by the way. Maybe the only one Felix and his wife had. He's given it to them politely and kindly, but don't misunderstand, he's being very direct. He wants them to be aroused, to sense their peril. So violent and cruel had been the course of Felix that few had ever before dared even to intimate to him that his character and conduct were not faultless. But Paul had no fear of man. He plainly declared his faith in Christ and the reasons for that faith. And it gives us an outline, if you will, of what he shared. Faith in Jesus Christ, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. So what might have Paul said? I imagine Paul said a lot of the things he said all throughout the New Testament. I imagine he said this from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace, Felix, you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Nobody deserves it. It's a gift, Felix. Maybe he shared this one too, Romans 3, verse 10, also from the pen of Paul. There is none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners, we all share the same fate. Without Christ, we are hopelessly and utterly lost. Maybe he shared this one, Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death. Felix is starting to squirm a little bit. He knows what he's done. He doesn't even tell him that it's sin. He knows that it was wrong. We can't save ourselves, but there's more. John 3, 16. Maybe he shared These words, for God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. There's no reason for anybody to perish, but they should have everlasting life. And so he's showing here that the wages of sin is death, but we serve a merciful God. Maybe second peter 2 9 the lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment there it is a judgment day is coming god has to be judged just he can't just make our sins just poof disappear somebody has to pay the price felix who's that going to be are you going to pay it or do you want somebody else John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why would Jesus come, this God-man individual? Hebrews 2.17, for this reason, Paul writes, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful, or we could say just high priests in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Who's going to die, Felix? Jesus is going to die. Jesus already died for your sins. They don't have to be credited to you. You can be released from your past. You can have eternal life. Maybe he shared First John 1, 9, or the ideas of which I should say, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe at some point, Paul interjects, I hope he did, his own testimony. Let me tell you how unrighteous I was. Let me tell you what was on my record. And it's not because I'm faithful, it's because he's faithful and he is just and he forgives. It's laid on him. He was the atonement for my sin and it can be yours too. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Stay there, Paul. What is this talking about? He became sin for you, and he also wants to impart his character to you. Really? Can he do that? Absolutely he can do that. He wants to do that. Maybe he shared John... One verse 12, something along these lines. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you want to be his son, Felix? Do you want to be his daughter, Mrs. Felix? How do you do it? By faith, by believing in his name. 1 John 5, 12 to 14, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Felix, you can have eternal life. You can know it today and it will be a new life. You will be forgiven. You will be a new creation. You will be a son and a daughter of God. He did it for me and he can do it for you. This also was something Paul wrote. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become what? new not fixed not refurbished they're new in christ maybe he related how good it felt to be redeemed how good he slept being forgiven how life became more fulfilling with a purpose it says he talked about self-control as well maybe galatians five twenty two and 23 came to paul's mind but the fruit of the spirit is love joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against the, such there is no law. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This isn't the fruit of you. It's not the fruit of me. It's the fruit of the Spirit. As we invite him in, he does the work in us if we're willing. But sadly, the verse says Felix was afraid. In fact, we get the, the hint in Spirit of Prophecy that Paul was interrupted. It says in verse 25, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Felix? Big Felix? Governor Felix? Afraid? Afraid of what? Afraid of being ridiculed? Afraid of what will people say? What will they think? Maybe afraid of what he might have to give up? Conversations he might need to have with his wife? What was Felix afraid of? It doesn't tell us, but many of you can relate exactly to what Felix was afraid of because you too have been confronted by the gospel even just this morning perhaps and someone watching this is afraid and you're afraid of all the same things. What will people say? What will I say when they ask? How will I possibly make the switch? I'm so steeped in this sinful lifestyle. I look good on the outside. But if you only knew, Pastor... How in the world am I ever going to give all these things up? Ultimately, it comes down to something very simple. You're afraid of giving up control. Afraid that you'll look weak. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. Nobody tells me what to do. But you know what else you're also afraid of at this same moment? Deep down in your heart, in your gut, in your soul, you're afraid that this is the biggest opportunity that you have ever been given and you're afraid to walk away from it. And how does Felix respond? He says, go away. I'll call you at a time that's more convenient. It's not convenient right now. I have too much going on. I'm too much in the middle of this, in the middle of that. It's not a good time. Depart, Paul. Notice Felix is not saying no. He's just saying not now. Not now. It's not convenient. It's not practical. It's not a good time. Not now. But friend, if not now, when? When? When will it be convenient? When are you going to stop being afraid? When will it be a better time? When will you stop waffling? When will you stop being weak, but rather be courageous for God to take a stand for Him? And that's what it means to be a true man. When are you going to stand up and say, no, today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day I give it up. Today is the day I surrender. Today is the day I say, okay. Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Friends, this is the biggest opportunity of your and my lifetime. And you're going to tell me it's not convenient? And what guarantee did you have that the opportunity will come around the second time? Are you saying that God will not offer it tomorrow? No, but I am saying you may not be able to respond tomorrow. You nor I control tomorrow. We simply control today, right now, this moment. This is it. Now is the day of salvation. It doesn't say tomorrow. It doesn't say next week, next month, in a few years from now. It says today. Now's the time to respond. Now is the hour to seal your commitment. And friends, whatever you're afraid of, it's not worthy to be compared to the glory which will be revealed in us. To the life eternal he wants to give to you. To the assurance that you can have to be right with God. The peace that will come by walking with him. Friends, all these other things, they're not worthy to be afraid of. Back to Acts of the Apostle, it says the Spirit of God sent conviction to his, Felix's soul. And Felix felt that Paul's words were true. That's called conviction. And some of you here watching, you say, I know his words are true. I know that's what the Bible says. I've heard it before. I'm not disputing it. But what does he say? Go. It's not a convenient time. Instead of permitting his convictions to lead him to repentance, he sought to dismiss these unwelcome reflections. The interview with Paul was cut short. Go thy way for this time, he said. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Friends, how wide the contrast between the course of Felix and the jailer of Philippi. Of who? Remember the jailer? Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are bound in prison. They're in the inner prison. And rather than complaining, they're singing hymns unto the Lord. And then finally the earthquakes, the prisoners are released. This guy is the head jailer and he's in panic. And so he's going to commit suicide, knowing that will be his fate anyway. And Paul says, what are you doing? We're all still here. And he preaches the gospel to him. The Holy Spirit convicts his heart. And how does he respond? Go away, Paul. It's not convenient. Not at all. When the Holy Spirit sent conviction to the jailer's heart, With trembling, he confessed his sins and he found pardon. When the Holy Spirit sent conviction to the governor's heart, Felix too trembled, but he would not repent. The jailer joyfully welcomed the Spirit of God to his heart and to his home. His whole family comes to the Lord. Felix, he bade the divine messenger depart. The one chose to become a child of God, an heir of heaven. The other cast his lot With the workers of iniquity. And so again in verse 26. He has further interactions. It's all money based. It's not about faith in Jesus. not about scripture. It's all about greed. One more quote here. 427 Acts of the Apostles. One of the saddest quotes to me. That was his heaven sent opportunity. To see and to forsake his sins. But he said to the messenger of God. Go thy way. For this time, when I have a convenient season, I'll call you back. I'll let you know. Don't call me, I'll call you. He had slighted his last offer of mercy. Never was he to receive another call from God. Is this to say that God stopped trying? No, I don't believe God ever stops trying. He's always knocking on our heart's door. This is to say this was his best opportunity to respond this is when his heart was most convicted and he rejected that conviction and he pushed it away he never said no he just said not now maybe later but all too often later never comes and i believe somebody here is watching this whether it's on a live stream whether it's later on whether it's years from now you're watching this god has led you to this particular sermon this particular series whatever it is And he's convicting your heart. And he's saying, now is the day. Today is the day for salvation. Today is the day to make a decision. Which is it going to be for you? Susie Orman is an American financial advisor. She's an author. She has her own podcast that she hosts and different things. For 13 years, she had a show on CNBC that was all about finances. And a few years ago, she admitted her biggest financial mistake. She said, in 1997, there was a little company I'd never heard of before. I bought stock because I liked the name, Amazon. I bought $5,000 worth of this stock. I kept it for a few years, but it didn't do much for me. Nothing was really happening with it. I shouldn't say that entirely. I did make some money off of it, but I didn't think anything big was going to happen with it, so I sold it. As of this year, Amazon is ranked by Fortune 500 as the number two company in the world. And you say, what's number one? Well, Walmart. Well, Walmart, if I were you I'd be a little nervous because Amazon's coming. But she says it makes me think to sick to think about if I had never sold my stock, five thousand dollar initial investment. If she would have kept it until this day. When did I say she bought it? In ninety seven? Yeah, that's not even that long ago. Twenty three years ago. If you would have bought that stock for five thousand dollars and kept it for the last twenty three years, it would be worth today estimated? Seven and a half million dollars. Had she known what she was giving up, there's no way in the world she would have sold. But friends, this is trite. This is money. This is stuff. Here today, gone tomorrow. But the reality is, if you don't have your health, how much do you have? You don't have anything. But we serve somebody who promises us, not money, not stuff, not things, not a life of ease. He promises us eternal life. Jesus is asking for our heart today. And while we think we still have tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, the reality is we may not. I can tell you stories of when I preached and that following week, something happens tragically to an individual in my church and they're gone. And I find myself reflectively thinking that was the last sermon that they heard on Sabbath of their whole life. That was the last altar call that I had opportunity to make for that individual. They didn't know they were going to church. They were putting on their clothes just like before. Did I wear this last week? No, okay, I can wear it again this week. Let's do my hair, blah, 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 go to church. That was it. Like that, it all changed. And the reality is the final day of reckoning will come when many will see what they gave up. And if they only knew what they were giving up, they never would have sold out. And so when is my last opportunity to choose, you might ask? I don't know and neither do you. And that's why it's so important that the greatest opportunity of all time to live for eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the only one who truly loves us, the idea of passing that by, I'm not going to say no, just not now. Friends, truly, today is the day. Don't wait. Perhaps now's the perfect time. Pastor going to make, I know if you were here in person, you'd say, the pastor's going to make a call. Oh no, I'm starting to sweat. Oh, no, what's he going to have us to do? What am I going to have to do? What are people going to think if I go forward? Forget all that nonsense for today. You're at home. You're in your comfort zone. But I'm going to pray after we sing our closing hymn. And in that prayer, if you want to make a decision, pray in that prayer, Lord, it's me. It's me. I want to make the decision right now. It's me. And then there's something else you have to do. You have to call me. You have to text me. You have to email me. Well, I don't like you, Pastor Right? That's fine. Call a different pastor. Text a different pastor. Pastor Ferguson's still in town. Pastor Baute's down the road. You know him too. Pastor Brian is here. Call somebody, call an elder and say, "I made a decision, and now I need to follow through on that decision. I need to be baptized. I need to be rebaptized. Whatever it is that the Lord is placing on your heart, whatever the Holy Spirit is telling you to do, verbalize it to somebody and act on that decision. We're going to sing now. Closing hymn is 294. There's power in the blood. And friends, let me submit to you before we sing it. There is still power in the blood. The question is, would you be free from your burden and sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you be free from your passion and pride? Good news, there's still power in the blood of Jesus Christ. Would you do service for Jesus, your King? And you might say, how? Through the power, power, wonder-working power. And where is it? In the blood of the Lamb. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have spoken to hearts this morning. You've convicted individuals of what you would need them to do, what's standing in the way. And Lord, they're fearful. They're fearful of what this will mean, what this will look like, how they'll move forward. But Lord, you're not going to abandon them at any step in this process. But that you will continue to guide them through. Lord, you long to give them peace and assurance. As in humility, they plead for forgiveness for their sins. With tears, as they thank you for your atoning sacrifice. And in desperation, they plead for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on their behalf that they might live for you with the fruits of the Spirit. They're not sure what the future looks like and how this is going to work, but they know in whom they have believed and they have made a choice and today is the day of their salvation. Lord, I praise you for their decision. I pray that you will lead them to who to reach out to. And I pray that this will be the beginning of of an incredible journey with you it is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.